Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for March 30th, 2020. We're back at it again after a short hiatus, which felt like forever. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we looking to do here today? Well, we're going to look to get back on track discussing the world around us. We're going to talk about ideas, maybe even a couple of topics. And what we're going to try to do is discuss them in a way that is in good faith, in a way that respects ideas, doesn't try to come at it with a pre-established agenda, but just to follow the ideas where they go, making sure that we, ourselves, and you, our listeners, are adequately informed on a variety of topics. Yeah. So while we may not know everything, we like to think that we know enough to talk about it. Sometimes. Maybe. Possibly. But... We know we don't know everything. We know our views aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. We are not on the ivory tower, booyah. But um, we try to bring a more human side, whatever that may be. Maybe it's just the narcissistic rankings of our of our inner monologues. But anyway, Evan. Yes, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about a book I read as uh, may surprise some of you to know. I'm one of those nerds who reads bookie books. Holy shit. And uh, I know. Recently, I read a book that uh, I thought was kind of interesting called The New Geography of Jobs. It is an attempt to understand and explain how the workforce has shifted within the 21st century. This was written in 2012 by an economist named Enrico Moretti out of UCLA, or Cal Berkeley, maybe, uh, one of those California schools. And he is Italian in origin, but now lives and works in the United States. And he has noticed a trend that he calls the Great Divergence. And it is affecting cities and geographic regions within the United States. Essentially, some places are doing really well. Think about Seattle and Austin, Texas, places that are having huge growth rates, booming economies, and things look to be doing really well. But there are some towns, mainly in the Rust Belt, think of your Detroits, your Clevelands, your Pittsburghs, and these places are struggling, losing population, losing industry, and he wants to try to figure out what's going on. And he has determined that it is this aspect of geography that is really important in a city's economic prospects. Essentially, where you are located can have a huge impact on what you are able to do. Moretti says, it's not what you know or who you know, it's where you're located. And some of the supporting evidence he gives for this is that when you adjust for inflation and cost of living, high school graduates in a prosperous area like San Jose make more than college graduates in economically depressed areas like Flint. And you, at face value, you would think that's ridiculous. Someone who has more education surely would be able to do better economically. That's true on the aggregate scale. But what we're finding is that where 
you end up placing yourself is extraordinarily important. And the engine for this change and this new focus on these geographic hubs is the shift to innovation jobs. Think about high-tech jobs. What Moretti finds is that as we continue to advance our economy, it's pretty obvious that we can outsource most manufacturing jobs. A lot of America's wealth was built on being able to manufacture things more quickly, more cheaply, and better than other countries, but this is no longer true. However, the one place where America still leaves the world is in basically thinking of new ideas. iPhones are made with parts from all around the world, but Apple is still headquartered here. The ideas, the innovation, still come from the United States. And there are a lot of economic benefits to this. Innovation jobs pay more. They generate more jobs in the surrounding community, and they grow the economy more than manufacturing or service jobs. But the catch is that the gains are not evenly distributed. These places that are able to capture these innovation jobs, like Seattle and San Francisco, then become prosperous but that outsourcing of manufacturing kills jobs in places that are not able to adapt. And you might think that because these innovation jobs are mostly involve mental work, they don't need often big facilities or heavy machinery as would be associated with manufacturing, that due to low cost of living, these jobs would eventually diffuse across the entire country. You might say, man, an office building in Palo Alto sure is expensive, but I can go to Toledo and do the same work at a much lower cost. But this is undermined by what Moretti calls forces of agglomeration. There are reasons why it makes economic sense for businesses to stay in areas even when the cost of living and the cost of doing business is high. The first reason is what he calls the thickness of labor markets. Thick labor markets are markets in which there are a lot of available jobs and also a lot of qualified people able to fill these jobs. When companies want to make a name for themselves in the tech industry, you often find that they have to move out to the West Coast or to a city that already has a thriving industry. They know that they'll be able to find qualified applicants to fill their jobs. And similarly, people who are interested in these fields move to the places where they know the jobs are. And this is extraordinarily beneficial for a couple of reasons. One is that if your company has an opening, you know that you'll be able to get it filled very quickly and you can continue to innovate and produce. Also, we find that a benefit is that you can find, if the labor market is bigger, if it's thicker, you have a better chance of finding the specific specialist you need. For example, if you're a visual effects company and you're trying to operate out of, like, Salt Lake City, it might be pretty difficult to find someone who has both great computer skills and an artistic background, but go over to Los Angeles and there are thousands of those people ready and willing to work for your company. 
And it's this specialized nature that feeds into the second force of agglomeration, the specialized service industry. So for example, a company that wants to open up and begin a new tech firm, say they want to produce a, a brand new type of tablet, often to do so, they will need startup money from venture capitalists. There's not a lot of venture capital going around in Tennessee. The venture capital is in California or Washington. So if you want to access that, you have to be where the money is. Or if you are a startup who is trying to incorporate, there are a there's a greater number of attorneys with experience in company incorporation in areas where there's already a large client base for that particular need. So it makes sense once an industry gets big enough that the people who service that industry crowd around that place and create a cycle. The final force of agglomeration is called knowledge spillover. So what Moretti's research has suggested is that people are more productive when they are surrounded by other people doing the same type of work. And firms are more productive when they are surrounded by other firms doing the same type of work. Now, some of this is due to what we talked about earlier with the thick labor markets, but there's also almost an informal quality to it as well. You know, Apple's innovators can have an occasional lunch with their friends who work for a different company. They both talk about the projects they're working on and being in contact and dialogue with other smart people gives them someone to bounce ideas off of them and sets the stage for more fertile innovation. So for these three reasons, we find that once an industry is established in a location, it's very difficult to move it. And even if doing business in that location is expensive, it still behooves new firms to set up shop within that locale. So the obvious question for struggling cities like Cleveland and Detroit is how do we create one of these hubs? And when Moretti has done the research to figure out how these sorts of hubs have started, the answer is <laughs> almost a little bit hard to believe because there doesn't seem to be any uniting factor in the places that become successful. And instead, what Moretti says is that it's more of a star system. It takes someone really talented and really successful setting up shop within a location to start the process of becoming an innovation hub. Think about Bill Gates with Microsoft. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but Gates and Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen wanted to be closer to home. They were both from Seattle. Seattle at the time was a declining manufacturing city. There was no good economic reason for them to move to Seattle, but they just liked the area. It was their home. And so by moving Microsoft to Seattle, it was able to create and sustain a tech hub that today makes Seattle one of the nation's most prosperous cities. Another example from the world of academia comes 
when we examine the economics department at Washington University in St. Louis. Now, WashU is a fantastic university, world-class, one of the best in the country. But for years, their economics department did not rank as highly as their other programs. So the administration decided that to jumpstart their economics department, they were going to poach the best economics professors in the country and pay them a ridiculously high salary, $600,000 a year, to come and hopefully start a brain hub within the economics department at the university. And it worked. After attracting these top candidates, other people, other top economists, wanted to go to Wash U to work with them. So, obviously, if you are relying on an academic all-star to create an innovation hub, this makes it very difficult and almost impossible to actively initiate. Moretti is very optimistic about the role that cities can play in doing, in creating an innovation hub and making themselves more open to business through tax incentives. But it's important to remember, and Moretti admits this, that not all tax incentives are created equal. You really have to try to attract these stars and all-star firms. You can't just say, well, any business that comes here, if you want to open up a new Kohl's, we're going to give you a tax break to open your store here. That's not really what drives the innovation hubs. Um, I can't remember who said this. He quotes it in the book. But um, it said something like, uh, in, in the 60s, if you built a manufacturing plant, a Walmart would follow. But if you built a Walmart, a manufacturing plant would not follow. There is, there is an order to this that needs to be maintained. And unfortunately, that seems to be very difficult to achieve without having a targeted one or two people in mind to attract to your location, which can be ridiculously hard to do, and failing to do so, but still offering tax incentives can set your city back. So, so much of this is tied up in what we talk about when we talk about manufacturing and automation. Andrew Yang calls this the biggest winner-take-all economy that we've ever experienced, and he's absolutely correct. And when even the experts on this phenomenon do not offer suitable answers for how we reverse this or ensure a way for all locations to take place in this prosperity, it's my opinion that what we need is not to try to mess with the market forces, not to try to make companies relocate to Pittsburgh but it's an expanded social safety net so that those who are left behind at least are able to live dignified lives without sacrificing the efficiency and innovations of these hubs and prosperous cities. Yeah, so one thing that, I mean, that kind of last little bit, you know, I, I believe it's true and it's what we should do, but it's always crazy. You know, we used to think, well, I used to think that 
oh man, all these people in rural areas, they're voting against their economic interests for people who want to, you know, cut the social safety net and all that kind of stuff. But I, I've realized is they buy into the prophecy of jobs because they feel like they're capable people. They just haven't had the opportunity to take care of themselves. Like they don't want somebody to come in and just take care of them. They just want to the opportunity to be able to take care of themselves through a decent job. But, but that's, that's an aside to the, the last thing that you said. So yeah, it does seem like cities very much profit and do well from when they can get someone who, or get a business that seems like it will fundamentally change society in some way to just happen to be in their town when it's at the beginning. Like, you know, like you said, with Microsoft, all the stuff that's going on in uh, like Silicon Valley, you know, just happens to be where the future of the society was. But I was thinking back to our hometown of Galesburg. And I think through um, NAFTA, but in other ways, changes to the economy, there every business has kind of the dimensions that it compete, competes along or the way it drives its costs down or what makes it economically viable. And there's a whole part a whole lot of the United States or specifically the Midwest that was home to manufacturing jobs that were decent paying jobs that, you know, held up the community and made good, uh, good economies for these places like Galesburg. But the way those companies competed was their products were very heavily, the price of their products was very heavily dependent on the price of labor and uh, everything else kind of being equal labor is the way that they would be able to offer lower prices so they weren't in cities where there were already another bunch of manufacturing jobs and they had to compete over the same workforce to get people to you know into similar jobs you know they didn't want to have to compete we, you know, Maytag wouldn't put their factory in Chicago because they also don't want to compete with like a Whirlpool uh, facility across the street that's making the same things and competing for the same workers. So they ended up putting a b- whole bunch of these manufacturing facilities out in the Midwest where, you know, in the rural areas where labor was relatively cheap compared to that of the cities, making it more diffuse and letting the gains of the manufacturing uh, uh, industry be more diffuse to a broader area. Well, once it became that they could move their facility to Mexico or, you know, across the Pacific Ocean where the labor costs were way, way lower and then transportation costs didn't become an undue burden, they moved them there leaving a whole swaths of rural America and, you know, I guess more urban areas as well, just unable to sustain those, uh, those manufacturing hubs and making them move away. And it, yeah, it's important. You go go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, just gonna say it's, it's important to remember that, yes, this is all 
the conditions to make this possible are because the the engine that drives our national economic activity has fundamentally changed. And a concept that we learn in the book is the idea of traded versus non-traded jobs. So for example, manufacturing is a traded job. It can be pretty much done anywhere. And so it makes sense to just make sure that you can do it in the cheapest area possible. It's naturally diffusive. But innovation jobs are non-traded. They just, someone, you know, Bill Gates is not as good, or, or you know, the, the 70th best innovator is not nearly the same as Bill Gates. Whereas most factories and manufacturing plants are pretty much the same wherever they are. And so that's when the forces of agglomeration take over to pull in these really uh, in high demand type of people with these profitable skills into a very small section of the country. And it seems to be, well, so we had this model where there was, we were producing all these goods and the real marker for where they would be was based on where the cheap labor was. So now we've gone to a point where um, labor in the United States, even in the most rural, the most in the cheapest areas, cannot compete with the cheap labor of Mexico or China or what other um, East Asian or uh, South of the American border countries can provide. So this leads to a situation where, I mean, this maybe was addressed in the book, but it and maybe uses different terms than I'm using, but it seems like, I mean, there is the innovation field, which is huge to the United States with all the uh, entailed uh, reasons for geographical uh, location, you know, uh, getting right around each other because, I mean, that you could have an like a online university, but that's just teaching. But if you bring all the people together, you can collaborate and have ideas. Collaboration mm-hmm. is a lot harder at a distance. Even if you say all the same words, there's something about just physically being together that makes collaboration way more susceptible to happening. But that's then- true. That's that's what Moretti's research finds when we talk about knowledge spillover. Those, uh, at least as of right now, the distance communication technologies that we have cannot adequately reproduce that level of collaboration in person. Right. And then also it seems like um, that the kind of newest industries that are taking off at different places in the country are very geographically concentrated. So I'm thinking of Amazon. So Amazon is dealing in traded products, but they don't just put their Amazon facilities anywhere. They put them close to where the customers are. I once listened to a podcast series, or maybe it was an episode, I forget who made it, but it basically looked at this small town in Kansas that had the first, I think it's the first Amazon facility that was outside of Seattle. And it had been chosen because it was smack dab in the middle of the country 
And it could, at that point in Amazon's business model, they just needed to uh, deliver to the whole country. So smack dab in the middle of the country was a good place to have it. But now that Amazon has become more, uh, has been become more successful, they have switched to a model where they have Amazon facilities near major metro hubs or just outside of them or, you know, in between a couple of them in order to provide faster service. So the business model of having an Amazon warehouse in the middle of the country no longer makes sense because it's not close enough to any major metropolitan areas. But where I live now, Kenosha, Wisconsin, they have an Amazon facility, but there is also a huge thriving warehousing market because just happens to be where it's good to have warehouses. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a, a single warehouse can serve both the Chicago and Milwaukee market, which is a huge geographical bonus having two big markets to supply to just, you know, within a short drive of each other. So Kenosha has been winning out just based on geography. You know, it used to have a manufacturing uh, industry here, but that left. But now the economy has changed that it's valuable because of where it is. But let's say a town that isn't here, like, hell, I mean, let's go back to Galesburg. Galesburg isn't geographically central to many or really any businesses. And what what's going to come along, you know, you're talking about Detroit or Cleveland or, you know, I forget which examples you used. But I mean, what's going to bring economic fortune to smaller towns? And yeah, that's just what I wonder. Yeah. And this is becoming really critical when there are these hubs because it affects all of the workers, not just those who are in these innovation and high tech jobs. So someone in a prosperous area like San Francisco, a barber in San Francisco with equal experience to a barber in Galesburg is going to make more money oh yeah and there's there's a lot of reasons for this one is because they have to make more because the cost of living is so expensive so wages have to keep up or there will be no reason for barbers to be in san francisco um but also think about everything else if people in the high-tech industry are making more money they have more money than to spend on goods and services and it just creates a virtuous cycle the problem is that these gains and and on the whole it is a gain there's estimates that uh, an innovation job coming to a city creates five new jobs in the service sector and that overall um you know automation creates two jobs for every job it destroys it is a net gain but for people in pennsylvania michigan wisconsin it doesn't feel like these gains aren't felt because those are the places being hollowed out as a result. Right. The places where this growth is happening, there is an upward spiral where, 
um, like you said, an innovation job creates more service sector jobs, and those service sector jobs creates more demand for innovation and goods. So that creates other jobs, and you know it just cr- keeps concentrating on itself. Where everywhere else that doesn't have that almost has a downward spiral. Like you know, I mean, I'll keep going back to it, but Galesburg, Galesburg has a real brain drain. There is nobody. There are very few people who are of high caliber. I, I, I'll be careful how I say this, not to be insulting, but people who grow up in that community and become educated oftentimes don't move back. And, you know, they're spending all that money to educate people to have them go off and be economic provider or you know, being economic units somewhere else that isn't there. It's interesting that you bring that up because that is something that Moretti talked about. It's a very expansive book. I enjoyed it, not quite on the level of something like Why We're Polarized, but it was still a good read. Um, but he talks about education because that's one of the things he he says is, you know, well, if if, you know, say Cleveland said, OK, Cleveland State we're going to make sure that they have a really strong engineering program. Would that help? And the economic analysis has shown that there is no correlation between state spending on higher education and local education of the workforce, because if you don't like it, you if you don't like the area, you just move. There's, there's nothing to stop people from having that mobility. And so we find that on a local level, education is not a fix to this, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I mean, and then also um, through this new economy, college towns are really taking off. Like, hell, we, uh, you know, both Evan and I lived in uh, Shambana for a little bit, Champaign-Urbana, where the University of Illinois is. I mean, until, you know events that have taken the course in the last couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> it was a really thriving economy because there was this innovation boost to, you know, the university being there. And this happened in uh, Mayor Pete's town of South Bend, Indiana, which has had a better than normal recovery for a former manufacturing town, mostly because Notre Dame is there which helps drive innovation and brings people who are of a higher economic earning status there than otherwise would be if the university wasn't there. So we just see a total realignment of how the economy works that just happens to be very geographically uh, destructive in some ways to a lot of people or large if we're going to use our like critique of the electoral college uh, language, it's giving disproportionate economic woes to people of who live in areas with lots of land. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So my, my takeaway in my summary is that so much we hear talk about how, forces of automation and technological innovation create jobs and prosperity. And then we have a, another segment of people who are really concerned about how this is actually destroying jobs and destroying our economy. And the paradoxical answer is that both are happening 
which reality you experience just depends on where you live. Yeah. Yep. It sure does. So, Joe, what do you want to talk about? Uh, what do I want to talk about? The very topical topic of HBO's Chernobyl. So, uh, over the last few weeks, uh, events have led me back to this series. And um, just uh, as a forewarning, there will be spoilers to Chernobyl if you haven't seen it yet. So, be aware. Skip to later. I don't know. But anyway, Chernobyl is like peak Joe content. <laughs> it is a gritty, realistic. I mean, it's shot in a kind of true crime format or uh, narrative true crime format. And it's just dark, gritty, and it's involving a subject matter that I found so interesting when I was younger. The explosion at the Chernobyl uh, nuclear facility in the in Ukraine, not the U. Well, hmm. At that time, would it have been? I think at that time it would have been the Ukraine. But anyway, I don't know. I know people get up in arms. I don't think any of our listeners will get up in arms, but I'll just uh, be nice about that. So, for those who do not know, on April twenty sixth, nineteen eighty six, at one twenty three. And 45 seconds in the morning, the Chernobyl power plant, reactor number four, exploded, causing a massive amounts of radiation, causing massive amounts of damage to the facility and creating a crisis unknown to human history at that time. I mean, there had been bombings, but no one quite knew how to handle an issue at a civilian nuclear facility and the rest of the series is following a, a number of key players throughout it who basically oversee the uh the restitution and containment uh from the after effects of the explosion and the reason why we're talking about it now is because it feels so relevant today um, and what happened in the show feels very relevant today. So what happens is that the, the reactor explodes, but initially the supervisor and chief party officials who run the facility deny it. They deny that there was an explosion. It must have been some other part of it. They, they don't believe that it's actually the serious threat it is. They look at their, uh, you know, what they're called dosimeters, which tell the amount of radiation. They max out at three and they say, oh, well, it's just three when the, the number is much higher, way more lethal. And they, just a response to it that is wholly inadequate for the issue that they were facing. But in order to try and save face at a time of great anguish, a time uh, that should have called for great action, they decided to downplay it, not evacuating the nearby cities, not uh, having, not uh, responding in a way that would be for a nuclear explosion, but treating it as just a regular old fire. 
And it feels so similar today when we're we're dealing with the coronavirus about how we knew about it. But, you know, since the effects of nuclear radiation are invisible until they manifest in someone in sickness, nobody really knows until it comes to be bad. It's like the coronavirus. It could be out there. It could be on people. People could be asymptomatic and carrying it. And we only know until, you know, how bad it is until it kills someone because they were exposed to it and they had the conditions that made it worsen them. So I just felt like Chernobyl was a very fitting, uh, you know, it's analogous to today's circumstances with this uh, crisis that we have going on. But Evan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I also found it pretty relevant. The central question of the Chernobyl miniseries is what is the cost of a lie? The Soviet leadership lied about the severity of the radiation and in doing so, they delayed evacuations and certainly cost lives. The estimate ranges as high as 93,000 deaths from the Chernobyl nuclear explosion. And, you know, however you feel about Donald Trump or however seriously you take the coronavirus, when he said that the cases will clear up in a few days, that was a lie. And it delayed these stay-at-home orders that governors are now issuing. It delayed a response to the pandemic. It, uh, you know, there have been briefings on this as far back as, as January, but refusing to acknowledge the severity of the problem, be it Chernobyl or the coronavirus, and refusing to take action will most surely cause excess death in both cases. And, you know, when I think about testing capacity, it's woefully inadequate because instead of acting on the initial threat, instead of, if we're extending the metaphor, instead of believing the scientists that the, the core had exploded... He continued to downplay it and refused to ramp up testing capacity, which has led to a whole host of problems that I think we're going to get into a little bit later. Um, another big theme of the show is who do we trust to make these big important decisions and who do they listen to? There's a big struggle in Chernobyl between the scientists played by Jared Harris and Emily Watson and the long-term Soviet bureaucrats who just simply want to save face and say there's no way that a Soviet nuclear site could mess up so badly. And it again delays that response time. And when you hear Donald Trump saying things about how he wants to reopen the economy, which flies directly in the face of recommendations from Dr. Fauci and the CDC, it, it's pretty much uncanny how similar those responses are. 
Oh yeah, we're just gonna to have, yeah. We're just gonna evacuate Pripyat for a little bit. That that's yeah, what they told gonna, the citizens. Yeah, it's just gonna be for a little bit. You'll be able to come back. And they and they have not returned to this day. The, the area is uninhabitable still. Um or how the ultimate contaminated zone in Ukraine and Belarus was 2,600 square kilometers, and initially they only evacuated within a 30-kilometer radius. If you don't acknowledge the severity of a problem, especially one that has public health consequences like a nuclear radiation contamination or a virus, people die. That leads to people's deaths. I know that a lot of times we want to believe that the individual can do anything, but public health crises can only be solved through coordinated group and governmental response. That's just the reality of it. And if we didn't learn that on a global scale when it came to Chernobyl, we sure as hell should learn it now. Yeah. Well, and then there's also uh, there's a brief moment in the Chernobyl show where they interface with uh, patriotism, where they're in a meeting with the uh, local leaders and, you know, one one man starts to get flustered because, you know, his wife is getting sick and there's all these people who are, you know, having all this radiation poisoning coming to the hospitals. And he's like, hey, this stuff is pretty bad. Shouldn't we evacuate? You know, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. You can't just tell me that there's no issue. And then an older man who, you know, probably was through the revolution and been around for a long time gave this very impassioned speech that, you know, you should just you have to do the work of the state as uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, you know, envisioned. The state knows best. And if we're going to do what we need to do, if we're going to be great, we are going to do what the state needs. We are going to cut communication on this and we're going to make it seem like nothing has happened because the issue isn't too bad because they say it isn't too bad. And, you know, the belief in the state and then that man was very wrong. And there is a very nice shot later on where he's getting on the bus to be evacuated. But then also we have that today where there's just this feeling that there's some unchecked American exceptionalism that is getting us through this when it really isn't. Uh, There's a couple of really good parallels that I think come out of that dynamic that you just described. Number one is that it is toxic when decision makers are afraid of being embarrassed. The Soviets were afraid of admitting to the world that their scientific and leadership capabilities were not up to snuff. And right now, I think that there is a segment of U.S. leadership which is afraid of being embarrassed economically. They fear, just like the Soviets fear, that if this information and this public health crisis threatens their legitimacy and their ability to, in this case, get reelected come November, they're just going to sweep it under the rug, pretend like it isn't affecting things to the extent that it is. So I think that that, again, remember, this this miniseries came out last year. There was no way that it, you know, it was not a response to Yeah, they didn't drop it this week. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I think that they, they very incisively were able to say that, hey, when leadership values their own rule more than the health of their citizens, bad things help and happen. The other thing that I want to draw a parallel to, and this is a very small moment, this isn't really even thematically connected, but it just struck me while I was watching it, is that um, initially when the reports are saying that the fire is just a fire and there's no underlying nuclear meltdown, firefighters rush to the scene to put out the fire, but they are exposed to radiation that, what do they say, is the equivalent of 4 million x-rays or something? Oh, well, um, the, the radiation at, you know, just the surrounding radiation like a couple days after was, you know, about that much. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they were they were receiving the amount of radiation of a Hiroshima bomb every hour that they were there. Yeah, so... Um, when that happens, obviously they begin developing radiation sickness very quickly and have to get rushed to the local hospitals, and they very quickly overwhelm the capacity of those hospitals, and it's a truly catastrophic scene where there's not, well, there's really uh, not a lot that you can do to protect against that level of radiation, but there's inadequate protective equipment for the healthcare professionals, many of whom died of radiation poisoning. Secondhand radiation off, yeah, poisoning. Coming off of the patients and their clothing, um, the, the clothes of the firemen to this day remain in the basement of that hospital in the Forsaken Zone, and they are still in 20 as of 2019 emitting dangerous levels of radiation um and so that was a case where an acute shock overwhelmed healthcare capacity and it makes me understand that we should be very conscious of not overwhelming healthcare capacity here in the United States and also not endangering healthcare professionals who have to treat this condition yeah i mean they you know no matter i i think we'll get into this later but no matter what system of healthcare you have there's only so much healthcare capacity yeah we don't have endlessly unlimited amounts of healthcare uh just available you know we don't have a whole bunch of hospitals that just aren't used normally we don't have a whole bunch of doctors who just kind of hang out in case there's more healthcare that needs to be done. We have the people who do it and there aren't a whole lot of extra people we can pull into it. So if it ever gets shocked, you know, no matter what system you have, um, it, it, it can be overwhelmed and can't do the basic things that it needs to do. So, um, Yeah. I think uh, Chernobyl is very analogous to the situation that we are in right now. Oh, man. Imagine if they had just dropped that now. How many takes <laughs> there would be about this? Like, we're doing this now because I'm a fanatic. But um, if this was just in the cultural zeitgeist right now, oh, man. There would be so many people making these takes. But anyway, yeah, I mean, think think of how important that Tiger Show is. This would be even more oh, than that. That fucking Tiger Show is wild. I haven't watched any of it. Oh it's, my god, yeah. man, you gotta watch it. 
everybody you gotta watch uh, it um but, but any- i've got access to hbo now i can watch westworld yeah. probably do that instead your call <laughs> but anyway um i definitely recommend well i mean if you've listened through now either you don't care about watching chernobyl or you've watched it so anyway my recommendation still stands watch it again uh, <laughs> it's i like to go series. for it. it it's uh i i it, again it's peak joe content So anyway, um, in a free-form effort, we bring ourselves to our main topic, which uh, is uh, what what's going on? Uh, we all know we really jumped the ship by uh, calling last week's episode live from quarantine because um, I, we really hadn't quarantined yet, but... Um, on my personal experience about a little over a week ago, I started to have symptoms of coronavirus. I am, they never got severe and I am better now, but, uh, that was a little spooky when that first happened to me. So I've been in quarantine and will be quarantined throughout this week. Uh, and Evan, I think you got some developments on your personal side. Yeah, so unfortunately, um, my wedding as planned has been postponed. We are still hoping to have a smaller private ceremony close to that original date that we had planned in April, but there's absolutely no way that the large-scale celebration that we had hoped for and still want will be socially possible or socially responsible by April, so... We have postponed, we've got a makeup date in September, and we sincerely hope that things are better by now, but at the same time, we know they might not be. Um, So very, very personally sad for me, Um, and that's that's all there is to it right there. I I like how our, our personal life affected by coronavirus takes basically just escalated from the last episode when we gave them like just next leveled it like yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i'm really busy at work coronavirus interfacing with it oh i may have the coronavirus and then you're like oh you know i'm thinking about you know really seriously dealing with my wedding and you know if we'll be able to have it and then you just made the decision so yeah. Um, so in regards to our personal stories, I think that there's there's a little more detail to yours that will be very enlightening for viewers because you didn't just uh, keep it to yourself when you were experiencing these symptoms. Why don't you tell the viewers, listeners, about your attempts to report your symptoms? Oh, well, thanks, Evan. This is a story I love to tell. Um, <laughs> I think I'm the next Seth Meyers, damn it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got the symptoms on about Saturday and I quickly did some Google searching. I was like, well, I have the symptoms. I want to get tested, you know, just to know it, uh, if it turned out that I had a mild case of it and it didn't turn up to be anything, that's fine. If I didn't have it, that's also fine. Um, you know, it was just nice to know. So on Sunday I made an attempt Um, I, I Googled online and there was a Kenosha County, 
a COVID-19 hotline for me to call to get information about it. So it was okay. So I called the hotline on Sunday. They were closed. Uh, they <laughs> did not have the hotline active, which it was like, oh boy, you know, we're doing a crisis, but you know, I get it. We're still figuring things out. All right. So I call on Monday and I run through my symptoms and they're like, yeah, those are about the symptoms. Do you have any underlying health uh, issues? And I mean, I'm obese, but I mean, that's about it. I don't have anything else going on. They're like, okay, so at the time being, we're only testing people who have high risk symptoms or, you know, high risk of it becoming severe. So at this time, we advise you to treat it like you have the coronavirus and quarantine yourself. We will not be able to get you tested. And I looked and I looked and I looked. I look at testing in Madison, in Milwaukee, in Chicago, and basically found out the same thing. They were only testing people who looked or, you know, seemed like they had a severe case or had the potential for it to become severe and or life threatening. And so I'm just here and I don't know. Like, I am pretty much better now. Um, I don't, I feel all right. I never really felt too bad to begin with, but it happened to be that I had the exact symptoms of the coronavirus, which was fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath. And I couldn't get tested with the symptoms. <laughs> um, so that was that was a shock to me because I was very much like, you know, I talked with my boss on Monday. I was like, hey, you know, I got these symptoms. I'm, you know, I wasn't scheduled to work till Wednesday anyway. So I had a little bit of time. I had been planning to go get tested on Monday. And, you know, at that time, tests took about a day. I mean, I think they still do. They're, I think they're rolling out a new test that could take, you know, as, in as little as 20 minutes. But, and, you know, I was going to go get tested on Monday, here back on Tuesday, so that I would know by Wednesday what, you know, I was going to do. But nope, nothing. And I called back later in the weekend. Nothing had changed. But then even then, I saw an article in... <laughs> the Kenosha news that they were scaling back their testing because there was less demand. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, and see this whole thing. I mean, that to me is nothing short of an unmitigated cluster. Fuck. We are dealing with a pandemic and we are trying to make sure that people with underlying cause with underlying health conditions and immunodeficiencies aren't ending up dead and part of being able to do that involves knowing who has it and where they are and this is the real consequence of not scaling up testing capabilities earlier because my guess is they weren't turning you away just for shits and giggles they were turning you away because they didn't have enough of the tests and oh, they turn me away for shits and giggles. I call them all the time. They're like, oh, Joe <laughs> calling again. Joe again. There's no way he has it. He's just fucking with us. He wants the clout. <laughs> um, and so just I think that's such a, a sad microcosm of what the response has been, because 
when we talk about this social distancing, self-isolation, massive economic slowdown, this is because of inadequate testing. Imagine a world in which we had adequate testing capabilities so that everyone who exhibited symptoms could get tested. Or hell, there's even a world out there where anyone can get tested just so that you can clear yourself and know for sure that you don't have it. In that case, the only people who need to self-quarantine are the ones who are confirmed to have the disease, and everyone else can resume normal activity very quickly. But that's not what we have, and that is why these really severe, economically and socially, socially destructive measures are needed. We would not have to stay at home, shelter in place, quarantine, whatever you want to call it. That wouldn't be necessary if we had an effective way to determine nationally who even had the fucking coronavirus. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, parts of this conversation, I mean, there there are definitely going to be parts of what has happened so far, at least to what we know what's going on right now and then what's going to happen in the future going forward. And it's, you know, right now we're focusing on what has happened. Well, we've just focused on what is happening, which is currently people, most people aren't getting tested. The, the numbers that are coming out about the number of people who have the disease are probably way under the actual count because there is a very like high likelihood I have it or had it, whichever way it goes. But I am not in those numbers. I am not counted in that. It's only confirmed cases. So, uh, you know, we could go back, you know, we could say, oh, well, this has just come upon us the last few weeks. Um, how could we have managed to make all the testing supplies in order to test everybody in the United States. There's no way that could have happened. Well, I mean, I, I, I hate to do, you know, hindsight, you know, hindsight is 2020, but this isn't a, Oh, we made some calls that were wrong with the best information. No calls were made with any of the information at an early time. (laughs) So one thing we're going to have a lot of talk about Trump because he is very central in this. I mean, a pandemic is inherently an issue that is handled at the highest authority because it it cuts across state lines, it cuts across all agencies. It is a, you know, of the highest level. And the way that the federal government, you know, deals with it is often with, or often shapes how it, in the end is going to be dealt with. There is a, you know, especially with disease control, with health, there is a limited amount local and even state governments can do. So back in January, when there was kind of the first rumblings of coronavirus that it was, you know, it, it existed and was contagious, that um, Trump cut off travel with China, which at the time, you know, I'm sure there were some liberal takes of, oh, we're just overreacting. And is this racist? And, you know, if we get down to it, those conversations at this time don't really matter. But what cutting off travel with China did was buy us time. 
it bought us time before the virus got to us. Now, Trump likes to keep touting that he cut off travel early, which would buy us time, but proceeded to do nothing with that time. Until some of the first days of March, Trump and other members, I mean, I'm going to say Fox News, but kind of the right wing media thought the coronavirus was a hoax, pushed it that it was a hoax, that it was an attempt to impeach Donald Trump again. It was a hoax to try and hurt his electoral chances. It was a cooking up of the Democrats. They're just whipping you into hysteria. And now today, 2000 Americans are dead from the virus. We knew somewhat early. We could have acted out ahead of time. You know, the virus didn't originate in the United States. It originated elsewhere. We saw what was happening. There were experts who were saying we should have taken this seriously, and we did not. So now we are in a situation where we are one of, you know, it looks like we are going to have the worst go at the coronavirus for all developed nations where our death toll it's neck and neck with italy yeah i mean we're we're outpacing italy on a day-to-day basis and on a per capita basis so and it, it just worries me because you know i think we had this conversation either last time or two times ago where it's like you know, we can create these institutions, but what if we have the wrong people running them? And as far as my understanding goes, is that the United States has the capacity, has the institution, has the wherewithal to deal with something like this. But having the wrong person in power at that time means that it doesn't get handled or it can't be handled. And that just causes some serious worry for me for the whole, you know, America experiment. But yeah, I, I have, I have been absolutely mad these last few days or the last week or so that all of this, all of this is happening. Uh, I mean, things happen, but I'm mad at the response. Yeah. You know, it's obviously true goes without saying that Trump didn't start the coronavirus, you know, there's, this is not a ploy, but the response has been absolutely indefensible. It, it always comes back to that testing for me. If we had, if, if we could have ramped up testing capacity between the end of January and the beginning of March, we would not have to be making such dire social choices right now. And so I understand, I'm not telling people not to stay at home, I'm not telling people that you shouldn't social distance, but it seems weird that we're just attacking people online for going to the beach instead of directing our anger at the very powerful and incompetent forces who have created such a do or die situation. And like there were plenty of opportunities for uh, more testing to come about. You know, I read stories about how the Trump administration 
uh, try or refuse to bring on German tests that would test for the coronavirus. They put out no uh, grants from the CDC to give to research facilities to develop a test. Any tests that we do have were developed independently of any federal government oversight. They could have ramped that up from the very get-go. As soon as they, you know, there was a death in the world from the coronavirus, they could have started ramping up testing. Now there is some. Now it probably wouldn't happen after the first death because, you know, some with these diseases, who knows? But having, you know, they didn't have to ramp up production to test all 330 million of us. They just had to develop it. It just had to be known. But because of stubbornness within the Trump administration, not taking on uh, tests developed in other parts of the world, not uh, doing what they can to encourage tests to be made or to be developed by, uh, you know, the researchers that really put, you know, once it became clear that we needed to test people, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, oh, oh what do we test them with? <laughs> and... Um, and then we're just hugely behind on testing, you know, just knowing who I mean, like what Evan said, knowing who has it changes, changes the game. And, you know, it seemed like for a few days last week, Trump seemed to take the coronavirus seriously. But now he's back to not. Oh, it's not an issue. It'll work itself out in a few days. We're going to we're going to be back open on Easter um, when it's looking like we're still ramping up the amount of deaths, you know, I saw one stat that, you know, between it took from uh, what was it January or uh, February 29th to this past Thursday to make it to 1000 deaths from coronavirus. And it took from Thursday to Sunday to reach 2000. So we are on the climb of this. And then, then there, you know, besides testing, there's all the issues with, uh, you know, getting the necessary medical supplies. And, you know, maybe I'm beating a dead horse from what, you know, the rest of the discourse is saying, but there is a whole lot that could be done in the world of getting proper medical supplies to people. You know, what was it yesterday or two days ago? Uh, Trump was scoffing at the idea that New York State may need. 30,000 more ventilators to take care of patients like, oh, why did they need ventilators? Hospitals normally have only one or two, according to Donald Trump, and they <laughs> hardly ever get used or whatever the whatever he's saying. That just that was the one thing that made it clear to me that he does not understand this at all, even what the symptoms are, because ventilators are what gets people through this. It's a respiratory issue. People need to breathe and the treatment to in order to help save people's lives needs ventilators and respirators. That's the thing they need. <laughs> and he's like, oh, why do they need them? They only normally need one or two. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, let's even take that at face value. <laughs> Maybe there aren't too many serious ventilator related issues that need to be solved with ventilators. On, on a normal health, you know, system, but oh wow, crazy! When something uniquely targets that, all of a sudden they're in demand. 
And there was nothing that has been done. You know, a week or so ago, Trump said he was going to invoke the Defense Defense Production Act in order to uh, or defense production powers, whatever it is, that is a provision in the U.S. government that the you know on on during times of siege, normally during war, that the United States government can take over production at a facility in order to produce what is needed. This was how Ford produced airplanes and tanks during World War II. He could have, he said he was going to invoke it, but waited at least a week to actually invoke it in order to get companies to make uh, any more supplies. And even then, he's not, he's invoked it in some limited capacities, but he's taken to mostly trying to bully the car companies on Twitter to make ventilators. <laughs> What is that response? <sighs> like, I am actually worked up over this. There are measures within government. Like, this is this is the fifth risk. <laughs> we talked about this. This is it. it. This is it. Something that came unknown. And the Trump administration either doesn't have people in the positions that need. I mean, in some cases, they got rid of the, you know, the pandemic officer they scaled back cdc's ability to respond to things and but then also the people that are there they either don't know or don't know the relevant powers or what to how to use them you know trump is great you know when his opponent is a person oh he can do well at that you know he can defame them he can create controversy he can call them names whatever but when it's something that doesn't care about publicity <laughs> like a virus <laughs> totally totally ineffectual and there is a real fear that this is going to spiral out of control and especially if we go back to work after easter like he says and be business as normal then we're going to be really really in the shitter because i i read this interview um in preparation from this, it was between Ezra Klein and an economist, Adam Tooze. And, oh man, what was it? He said that if we return to business as normal, it would be the apocalypse. Because everybody would be spreading the virus. And way more people would die and way more destruction would happen Many people's lives would be lost. And then even then, you know, I mean, normally take the economics out of your life situations, but the economic situation would be way worse than missing a couple more weeks of work. So I am (laughs) this is that that that's my passionate. Upset rant. (laughs) Yeah. Um. And so, again, remember that this entire shutdown of the world as we know it would not need to be on such a scale if not for the lack of knowledge. We have to proceed as if everyone has the coronavirus because we can't definitively say that X amount of people don't have the coronavirus. And so this is having real economic damage to people and to companies and industries and so recently 
Congress passed and the president signed a $2 trillion national stimulus bill. Joe, what are you... Uh, what are your thoughts on this stimulus bill? I think it's a good first step. Um, it's I think it's pretty small in comparison. I mean, of what it should be. Um, we, I'm glad we we've made the switch to economics because this is one place where we get a little it it gets confusing, and also you know we just don't know. But I have seen a bunch of takes that are um, why worry about the economy now when we're having a public health crisis. But let's delve into this a little bit. So the um, the legislation that was pushed through by Congress um, is massive and it's a good first step. But (laughs) funny enough, in the econ world, there's even a question of whether to actually call it a stimulus bill because a stimulus means to I mean, it means that the economy is doing something and you want it to do more of something. Um, The economy, I mean, before this was doing pretty fine. What we're trying to do is to stay at kind of the same level the economy is. This is more of a stabilization. This is like, I think, uh, as Recline has been describing it, you know, it's kind of like a mix of a wartime economy, a mix of a, you know, like after a hurricane happens where, you know, there is a whole bunch of economic activity and something else just comes out of nowhere to to mess it up. And then also a financial crisis could be looming um, if it turns out that financial markets can't keep operating under these circumstances. So under the bill from Congress, there is a whole lot of money that's going to be going to people. So individual tax uh Filers are going to be getting twelve hundred, or couples are going to be getting twenty four hundred, and for every dependent under the age of seventeen, an additional five hundred dollars. Uh, increase of unemployment insurance uh, for people who have filed, which this for the month of March, they are saying that there have been about three point three million unemployment claims, which is about two and a half times higher than ever has claimed in a two month in a month period and we it we are in real uncertain times right now and especially economically now we get to the question of why should we focus on the economics of this well right now the biggest the, the way we're treating the coronavirus is telling people to stay home, to socially isolate, distance, whatever you want to call it. But if we don't have those people out there working, then they're not producing the goods, they're not producing the economic activity, and because they're not creating economic activity, then the industries that are downstream of them aren't creating economic activity, and it's just a, you know one of those vicious cycles. And... We need people to stay home. We need them to stay home currently. But there is no pressing pause on the economy. At least one hasn't been devised yet. There have been attempts by uh, by banks, 
by or not banks by states and localities to put freeze on certain types of payments, mortgage payments, rent payments, you know, trying to help create relief from uh, these issues at the time for the time being. But then you get into the question of, well, how do you get it started back again? Like if somebody if you put a freeze on rent payments and then put a freeze on mortgage payments, then renters won't be paying landlords and landlords won't be paying the banks. But then let's say things get started, but the banks lend out money to businesses where people work. But if they're not getting that income, they can't lend out more money. So then the people who rent can't go back to work to earn the money to pay the landlord to pay the bank back. And it's I I am very spooked by this. And it seems like there is going to be a massive amount of unemployment resulting of this. Um, and as we you know, from the last recession, uh, economic. Uh, I mean, hell, uh, the book Evan sent me the broken ladder. I mean, basically, the tagline is that um, wealth or you know, income inequality, wealth inequality is a public health crisis, but a poor economy is also a public health crisis with suicides and people unable to correctly nourish themselves and unable to seek the care that they have. So trying to make sure that there is a, an economy after this, just having an economy after this is also a public health issue. <laughs> Yeah, that's sort of where I come in on this and where I guess I'm maybe a little bit skeptical, a little bit contrarian, is that, yeah, restarting the economy is not just about preserving the stock market for wealthy people, although there is that concern and I know that there have been criticisms of the stimulus or bailout or whatever you want to call it, that it has been slanted too much in the favor of of the powerful, which are valid concerns. But I think that when we hear that, you know, oh, well, we're going to have to socially distance and keep everything shut down for 18 months. And if you disagree, you're trying to kill my grandma is just such bullshit, right? Because yeah. obviously I value human lives over money of any sort. But it seems like we're only, or at least the, the left side of this discourse, is really only considering the lives lost due to coronavirus. But yes, when the economy takes a downturn, that costs lives. When people have to socially isolate and their mental health deteriorates, that costs lives. And I want to do what will preserve the most lives. And I think that reopening everything by Easter is asinine. It's not based on anything other than throwing out a date. You know, it's the same as the 30 mile evacuation ra radius in Chernobyl. It means nothing. It's just a stupid thing said by someone who has no understanding of the situation. But I also think we need to take the total human life calculus into consideration and I don't think anyone's having that conversation yet. Yeah. It, um, I, I definitely recommend this uh, piece 
that I mentioned before. Um, it is, again, it's an uh, interview between Ezra Klein and Alan Tews. It's called What Both the Left and the Right Get Wrong About the Corona uh, Economic Crisis. And the the critique of the left on that is that it seems to be that their criticisms are very much steeped in the 2008 financial crisis, where we gave bailouts to the banks, and those were very unpopular, very unpopular because the banks are pretty responsible for creating the financial crisis that they were being bailed out from. Like that was the issue. Um, you know, we, you know, at the and there time, weren't conditions on the aid. Yeah. That well, yeah. Fixed yeah. things for the future. Yeah. Right. So it was helping out the people who caused it. I mean, there was also the bailout for the bank or the the automakers, but I mean, that was very profitable for the United States. So that was a good investment. But um, what was it? We're we're talking about trying to like bail out the airline industry or try and bail out a bunch of small businesses. And none of these industries had anything to do with the coronavirus. Like there is a thought that during a recession, there is this act of it's called creative destruction where um, businesses that weren't very profitable or weren't real good businesses to begin with, they since they are on weak footing, they disband or they, you know, they go bankrupt. But then the crucial element of it is that if they were doing something valuable, that another firm that is able to do it well would be able to buy up that business or buy up their assets and be able to continue on doing the work of that business, but more efficiently. Under this crisis, there, there is a good chance there won't be anybody left over to buy up these businesses. So the airline industry is hit particularly hard because nobody wants to travel or nobody's going to travel under this. And this isn't through fault of their own. And if all the airlines go bankrupt, there isn't going to be some big Papa airline to come along and buy them all <laughs> up to make them, you know, to keep filling that societal purpose that is and can be very profitable. Now, I know there's some critique about the tax cuts that, you know, went through uh, last year or whenever they went through to these corporations that were huge handouts and they, you know, resulted in a lot of stock buybacks. But in some way, nobody, no business accounts for having just weeks where they don't operate or they, they see a significant loss in their revenue streams. These businesses are built on the idea that they're going to be working every week of the year or they plan the weeks that they aren't working because of a holiday or whatever. Nobody budgets to just, oh, here's our pandemic relief fund for the company in case there's some reason we just have to shut down for a month. Nobody plans for that. And no, and the only businesses that can weather that are the biggest businesses who have the or not even the biggest businesses, the ones who have are the highest performing financially, who have the highest profits, who have the most cash stashed away. 
those ones can survive. The ones who can, you know, can still kind of stay open through this, like Walmart or the grocery stores, they're going to be able to stay afloat. But other parts of the economy aren't because they just don't have the money. And then what happens if that business goes under because they can't make the payments or, you know, bring in customers? I mean, I think we're looking at a recession at a scale that nobody understands and it's going to be bad. <laughs> well, I understand and I'm open to the idea of helping industries like the airline industry and, and what have you. But I think that it's a mistake not to make aid conditional and use this leverage to push for better practices in the industry. Stock buybacks should be illegal, full stop. And I understand the drive to protect something like airlines who are going to be valuable. And like you said, there's it's going to be an industry-wide collapse, not just the inefficient firms. But we, we don't have to make it just a giveaway. I mean, I, I think the... I mean, if we sat down and really thought through all of these, I mean, yeah, that's right. We we should just give them um, something for nothing. But then also we're running up against if we don't do something like right now, then um, there's a possibility that it all just goes belly up. Um, that's why. I mean, that's why the number twelve hundred dollars for uh, every you know every person is just twelve hundred dollars. There is no study backed up that twelve hundred dollars right at the beginning of a pandemic is going to create an economic windfall and it's the most cost-effective amount. No, it was just figured out. Was it you know really well, it's based on the minimum wage? Yeah, well, yeah, but. You know, there was talk of thousand or talk two thousand, you know, whittle their way through. Um, there was also, you know, the six hundred dollars for people who are unemployed or filing for unemployment. I mean, again, it's just kind of a number. It, you know, the deciding who receives this, you know, I don't uh right now most college students do not qualify for getting any sort of aid. I don't think that's because somebody deliberately thought, oh, college students don't need money. It's because it was just forgotten. Like the, the, just the need to get the money out the door as soon as possible so that people can avoid defaulting or going hungry or what have you. They just needed to get the money out the door. Um, and I understand that. Obviously, you know, we can't sit around and, and demand a perfect bill under such circumstances, but these are professional legislators who can account for a wide variety of contingencies. And I, I don't think that means that we have to accept or, you know, be happy about whatever the first bill that they might be able to slam through is. Yeah. I think, you know, what our little deal is right now is I'm explaining why things happen and we're going and you're asking for a what should be and both are equally valid. <laughs> OK, I, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, a couple of other points about this national stimulus are that they do include. And again, there's there's been 
critiques of it along the lines that it, it uh, furthers power imbalances, but there are some nice things that have been included to try to protect people. Um, essentially, um, a lot of uh, federal student loan payments and interest have been suspended until September 30th, and there are no evictions uh, no one can be evicted from a property that has a federally backed mortgage for 120 days. Um, unfortunately, there are some holes in it. Like Joe was saying, you kind of got to get it done quickly. But that being said, there are some rather large holes. Um, utility payments are not covered. There is nothing stopping a utility company from turning out the lights on you because of this epidemic. Um something else and this doesn't really it's not uh, specific to coronavirus but it's just something that that kind of gnaws at me is that when we talk about unemployment that really I, I think that tying aid to former employment is just such a nasty proposition because it explicitly says that new entrants to the workforce who cannot find jobs are ineligible for unemployment so if you just graduated if you are trying to get back into the workforce and find out hey nobody's hiring and you don't have a previous income to fall back upon you are just as vulnerable now and there is no avenue to help you again that's sort of endemic to the unemployment insurance system but it still seems a little bit cruel in as manifested yeah. through this relief bill. Well, and then I'm I'm going to be the practical policy guy. I mean, I'm not saying this is how it should be, but I think they probably looked at what mechanisms that they had to distribute money to people, and unemployment is already an existing avenue which distributes money to people. So they're like, "Well, why don't we just boost that because so many people have lost their jobs?" Fair. Yeah. I just I always think universal basic income is better at doing that, but we don't have that yet. So, yeah. So everybody's policy wishes are the exact solution to this. Well, <laughs> ha ha ha. I'm not, yes, I, I, I'm not, not directed at you specifically, but that I know. was a, a point. Every, you know, people who uh, want a political revolution say this is when the political revolution is going to come. Uh, this is when we're going to overthrow everything. Um, who knows? Um, well, obviously, I don't think the conditions are bad enough to necessitate a revolution at this exact moment. But, you know, it, it comes up in uh, Rutger Bregman's Utopia for Realists. The only time when we have a, a an opportunity to make huge societal changes are in moments of crisis. Right now, we are facing a crisis and we are realizing that certain systems that we have thought were solid are not adequate for responding to something like this. And, you know, no system will perfectly respond to something like coronavirus. But given even given that, we're realizing the abject inadequacy of much government function. And so this is the time for people to ask... 
How can things be better? What does my perfect world look like? How do we make that a reality? And, you know, obviously it's going to have to be negotiated. My Evan Kelly's policy utopia will never be enacted, nor should it. I'm not an expert. But this is the time to have those conversations. This is our opportunity to make change. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, I'm really... um Congress, uh, woo! Every I know everybody's super happy to bring up Congress, but so they got this bill done, which you know, good on them for getting it done. Um, with a degree of cynicism, I could very easily be convinced that they couldn't even get something like this done. Um, <laughs> even though it's you know, I see it as a bunch of half measures in in a lot of ways, but they signed this. And then went home. They went to recess. And it is just bonkers to me that at a time when the country is at most need for things to be done legislatively, they went home. Now, I understand the feeling they want to be with their families. If they're going to isolate, they want to do that. But they didn't set up any sort of provisions for remote voting. And they don't don't plan to come back. And I think a fair number of them would have a real hard time getting back with all the travel restrictions. And Mm -hmm. by the time they get back and debate anything, it's going to be too late for whatever the next round of what we need is. And yeah, you know, $1,200. I mean, it's nice to get it. And since I'm still employed, you know, it'll be a nice little boost to my income, but for the people who lost their jobs and, you know, they're saying it's going to be like, what, two or three weeks before these checks come out for the people who have been down and, you know, who lost their jobs at the beginning, you know, all those service sector people who lost, you know, just lost their jobs immediately to all the people who have been furloughed to all the people who lost their income or, you know, just anything $1,200 and whatever that is in unemployment that they're going to get isn't enough. And it's not going to be enough to keep the economy going in any sort of way. And it's not going to be enough for them to uh, sustain their lives going forward. So I'm just very concerned that the, we're playing it small right now. Like what? <laughs> I, I mean, interest rates are zero. Um, this gets back to a conversation that Evan and I briefly had on modern monetary theory. I mean, basically the government can borrow as much money as it can or as it wants, as long as the two conditions are basically, or three conditions. One, they're a sovereign nation, which the United States is, so they have their own sovereign money and they can never default because they can always print more money. Two, if uh, interest rates are low, which means the government can service its debt, which means that, you know, if people are, you know, wanting to cash in their treasury bonds or whatever, they can do so freely and it doesn't cost the government a whole lot of, you know, a significant portion of their budget or it doesn't overburden them with the cost of it. And three, inflation stays low, which I don't think we're, you know, uh, in threat of going up against any of those. So tonight, it's the time to just absolutely shovel money out to people to get it going. I mean, uh, the Federal Reserve has been doing that with 
you know, with the banks trying to make sure everything's staying, you know, liquid, everything, you know, transactions are still able to happen, trying to prevent a panic. I mean, people are very critical of these these loans, but it is one of the essential functions of the Federal Reserve. And these are collateralized loans. So if these uh, financial institutions are not able to pay them back, then the Federal Reserve gets a whole bunch of bonds and assets that are worth more than what the loans were originally for. But the Federal Reserve can't loan money out to individual people um, because that's not in their charter. They can only lend out to banks and financial institutions, so they can't shovel any money out to us, um, the lay people. So, yeah, we're uh, Congress is in recess, and I think they shouldn't be. You know, should they be in a whole bunch of crowded rooms? Probably not. But something needs to be happening. Like, yeah, they, the, they are essential business. <laughs> yeah, the recess without provisions, provisions for remote voting or any way to conduct their business from home seems absurd to me. Um, I know there was a lot of a criticism on the left of the $1,200 number. You know, Bernie Sanders was pushing for $2,000 a month. But I actually, I'm okay with starting off with just a $1,200 check as long as you reserve the right to make adjustments down the road. But they have now apparently neutered their ability to do that. And, you know, as as we learn... Uh, again, to bring it back to Chernobyl, response time means a lot. And if everyone in our Congress is just going to go back home and wait and see, Joe is absolutely correct. By the time we know what needs to be done, it should have already happened. Already be too late. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So and I think this is a great transition to discussing how the lack of a federal response has placed a lot of burden on state and local governments to respond. And I've actually been doing some research about how my state of Indiana is responding. And for some context, I think Indiana has been drawing some fair criticism for being slow to respond relative to its neighboring states of Illinois and Ohio. It seems like Governor Eric Holcomb has not been as proactive as either J.B. Pritzker or Mike DeWine. And although, thankfully, we're not seeing a lot of outbreaks, I think people are being pretty smart here, um, there is some criticism to be had. But here's what is going on in Indiana. On Monday, Governor Holcomb issued a stay-at-home order, which will extend through April 6th, but could be prolonged if conditions dictate. And... This means that non-essential businesses are closed, you know, uh, basically you can get food, you know, go to the grocery store, carry out, you can, you know, go to an essential job if you work in childcare or healthcare or food service, but almost everything else is closed. The one thing that I think is interesting is that public parks are open because he decided that physical fitness was 
an essential operation. You can't go to a gym. Gyms are closed. But if you want to go walk at the park, that's okay with Governor Holcomb. Um, and we do. We take our dog because it's the only place we can go. Otherwise, we would be at home 24-7. Um, so is it enough of a response? Tough to say. Joe, what's going on in Wisconsin? Um, yeah, they've closed down all non-essential business. Um, I think the, so I'm not 100% up on how the electric situation happens in Wisconsin, but it seems to be that there's one electric company that services the entire state. And I think, I think they said that they will, uh, not be shutting power off for anybody who, you know, gets behind on payments. So I remember you had mentioned that earlier that there was no federal mandate, but at least the, uh, at least we energies is. Uh, you know, being a bro right now. That's um, good. I'm trying to think of what else Wisconsin has done. Um, you know, most of my media consumption is still about Illinois state politics, so <laughs> I don't know what's going on in uh, I don't know as much about what's going on in Wisconsin. Um, I I did get very up to date on the Wisconsin uh medical labs regulations for which tests that they would test um <laughs> based on their their testing criteria so um there's that um but yeah i mean wisconsin has been they they've been basically doing whatever illinois does but just a day or two behind um so that's about where we're at with that but my, that ought to be the state motto, Wisconsin, Illinois, just a day or two behind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll culturally shit on Illinois, but follow their lead. Um, Wait, is that true? Wisconsin tries to culturally shit on Illinois? Yeah. Oh, Wisconsinites that, hate Illinois. Or at oh, least that is such a, or Chicago. Chicago is the dunk on, which being from rural Illinois, I concur. But still, though, that that's kind of like a like a junior varsity basketball player shitting on the the varsity player energy like, oh, man, he can't hit a three. Well, I I think you're you're on the bench, buddy. (laughs) I bet there's a whole bunch of people in Wisconsin who just hate it that a whole bunch of people from the Chicagoland area have like summer homes and you know just spend time in wisconsin because it's so cheap and then they're arrogant about it um (laughs) i i bet that's most of the dynamic but um what was i gonna say something oh yeah so my favorite state's response was uh last week the governor of mississippi uh, issued a statewide order overriding local municipalities ability to issue stay-at-home orders saying that they could not issue them um, because he believed that this was a hoax and uh, people <laughs> should be going on business as normal. So that's insane. <laughs> um, oh, man. Willful blindness, man. I think it's they, strong they have people. since walked it back. But uh, again, when this first was starting... There was a whole, you know, we were talking about is the left's response to this too much? And we're finding out no. 
<laughs> and then you know, in the immediate term no yeah yeah and then the right's response was that it was a hoax do you guys does, does anybody remember ebola and how wildly of an issue it was propagated by the right or at least fox news like we were all going to be bleeding out of our eyes in a matter of days when the Ebola <laughs> crisis happened, but only a few people in the United States got it. And it could have been a whole lot worse, but uh, we handled it. The administration handled it. Now people are dying and it's like, well, you know, maybe some people need to die to get this economy going, which on face value, I don't believe what's, you know, I don't believe, but I mean, we, we discussed, you know, at some point, uh, the lives lost from the economy, but when, uh, oh man, when, when the, uh, when the Lieutenant governor of Texas went on TV, went on and said 80 year olds, 70 and 80 year olds should sacrifice their lives so that the young people can, have an economy so people can go to Dave and Buster's on the weekends. <laughs> I, 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 I strongly disagreed with it at that yeah. point. Indefensible. Yeah. yeah. At, at this point, that is not a, a stance to have. Now, let's say we're a month down the road and thing, you know, we're on the other side of the curve. Um, maybe we could start opening things up, but then there's also the fear that if you open things up too early, then it can cause even more deaths. Yeah. Cause like a, a second spike. Yeah. Which would, which would completely undermine the point. Yeah. And we could talk about China, but you know, they're so secretive. Why even bother? They, they have to have more deaths from this than they're saying. Um, it, it just, it just can't be. But who knows? And who knows? You know, we said in uh, previous episodes, maybe the, uh, you know, maybe an authoritarian government would be able to handle this much better. But uh, that's not necessarily the case, it seems. Okay, got to talk about Chernobyl again, because I did think it was interesting that even though the response time was really horrible because the hires up powers, higher up powers, the B were just willing to lie and you know, ignore the problem. It was interesting how quickly they were able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of workers once they accepted yeah. that it was a problem, you know, because they had to basically spend months and years going through the infected zone. They had to exterminate all of the animals. They had to uproot the top layer of soil and bury it under lower layers so that the contamination wouldn't affect the topsoil. And the Soviet government was able to conscript 600,000 young male workers for this purpose. And this ended up helping the recovery from Chernobyl in a way that would not be possible here. Just another thing that struck me. Yeah. And and one, one of the last things I want to hit on is kind of the social contract that societies have between its people. You know, we all kind of work in a society. We do good things. We do bad things. We do our, you know, what we need to do because there's kind of this idea that, you know, if you do something, someone else will take care of you. And it seems like at a point we are making a huge ask 
of our people to stay at home, forego wages so that people, not even just you, so other people don't die. And that is a massive ask. And traditionally, when societies make big asks of its people, like, say, going to war, there's normally a payoff at the end of it. So like the GI Bill, you know, sent a whole generation of young men to go fight in uh, World War II, and they were rewarded by giving, you know, college and subsidized loans to buy houses and many other things. So we are making a big ask of our society right now, and we really need to think, you know, if we want people to actually do this and for it to be effective, we need to imagine how we're going to pay them back for doing that. And I don't think, I mean, that's somewhat of the discussion, kind of what uh, Evan was talking about, big societal changes. But I think, you know, we can shame everybody to just stay home as much as we can. But I mean, rationally, people are going to want to leave home and not follow the orders because it can be in their interest too, or dire interests even. So I know it sounds transactional, but there is truth to what Joe is saying. Shame is not a powerful enough tool to create public incentives and direct public policy. We either need to have strict legal enforcement of stay-at-home orders. You know, right now Indiana has a stay-at-home order, but they've publicly announced, you know, that (laughs) there's not really going to be any enforcement. Cars aren't going to be pulled over and people aren't going to be questioned. So that's one way you could do it. Or, as Joe was saying, you offer the incentive. And, you know, some people, you know, when we talk about rationality and people being rational actors, we know that that's sometimes true, sometimes not. And some people are willing to just sort of put their lives into cryogenic freeze for the greater good. Thank you to those people. But others are not. And they have the same weight in determining how this response is going to go. And we absolutely should figure out how to reach those people. Yeah. You know, to get people to do things, there's the, you know, you can, the idea that you can either use the carrot or the stick and either right now we're using neither. (laughs) (laughs) We're, just, We're using hey, hey come on, guys, go. <laughs> it's all right. You know, you didn't believe scientists before. Well, the scientists say. Um, <laughs> so <sighs> that's where we're at with coronavirus now. So, Evan, I I think uh, would you say this is a good place? I am ready. Yep. All right, everybody. Well. Thank you for listening. We plan to be back on our regular schedule now um, of once a week. I know some people were saying um, they wanted more. Sadly, we had a break when all of a sudden everybody had free time to do whatever. So (laughs) uh, we will be back on our regular schedule. Uh, I'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. We'd like to thank uh, everybody. You know, we had a couple people write in this past week. Um, 
So let me check on who those were. Maybe we could discuss them at a later date, um, but we would like to thank Scott and Emily for writing in. And um, yeah, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.